Yes, you are listening to Law and Gospel Wednesday Bible Study, and we're going to be taking a look at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to introduce it by reminding you of what I've often said about the confessions of the Lutheran Church are simply summaries of the Scripture. And in fact, the Apostles' Creed, for example, when you confess that, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, you are simply quoting Bible verses. I don't know of any phrase in the Apostles' Creed that isn't a Bible verse. But some people question one of the phrases, and that's where it talks about Christ's descent into hell. And so we're going to be taking a look at the Bible passage that backs that up. One would imagine that his descent into hell, and there are some denominations that teach this, refer to when he was on the cross. Remember those words of Jesus? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What hell is, is the absence of God in his mercy and grace. He's there in his judgment. And Jesus did experience that. So I'm not going to argue that he did not experience that form of hell, but that's not what the creed is talking about. It's another passage of the Bible that it is referring to, and you're going to be surprised. It's not only not his crucifixion, it occurs after his resurrection. So without further ado, if you're at 1 Peter 3, we're going to begin with verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Now, that word once is really important because there are some Christians who believe that Jesus continues to suffer or at least to die on the cross during the Lord's Supper. No, he suffered once for sins. And that, of course, is the cross. And it explains who was suffering for whom. The righteous for the unrighteous. You see, Jesus was totally righteous. The only way he was regarded as a sinner is that God the Father declared him to be sin for us. That's found in Corinthians He became sin for us that he might die as a human being, as a sinner. And we believe that that sin became his when he was baptized by John the Baptizer. Remember, John the Baptizer says, hey, 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 I need to be baptized by you. You don't need to be baptized by me. And Jesus says, no, in order to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Well, he had been called by the Father in the plan of the Holy Trinity from before the foundation of the world to become a sinner for sinful mankind. 
so that he could take upon himself the suffering for our sins just once, and that was the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous. Now, what was the goal? What was the purpose of the cross? That's the next phrase. Verse 18, 1 Peter 3, that he might bring us to God. Boy, notice it doesn't say that he might lead us to God or that he might give us an example of how we get to God. No, the best Bible passage to show that is Jesus who actually brings us to God, he carries us to God, is, of course, Luke 15, uh, the parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd goes out, finds the sheep, and he doesn't say, follow me. No, he actually picks up this dirty sheep, puts it on his shoulders. It's not a lamb. It's a 100-pound sheep, carries it through the wilderness back home rejoicing. And that word rejoice is the same word used in connection with his crucifixion found in Hebrews. For the joy that was set before him, he went the way of the cross. So this is really important to understand. In Christianity, we believe, teach, and confess that we get to God not by our works, not by following Jesus, but that he carries us to our home, the Holy Christian Church. Now, how did this happen? Peter goes back in verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, That's referring to his crucifixion, put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. And one can understand that to be referring to the Holy Spirit that made him alive. In fact, this is a good question. Who rose Jesus from the dead? And an examination of the Bible indicates that all three persons were involved in his resurrection. The Father rose him from the dead. The Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. And Jesus himself says, I can lay down my life and I can raise it up. He himself was also responsible for his resurrection from the dead. And he's made alive in the Spirit. Verse 19 in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, we're looking at the ESV translation. Other translations say, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison. I I don't like that translation. Uh, There is a Greek word for preach. It's not used here. This is instead a Greek word proclaimed. And... You may have heard of that story where there was a big battle and a messenger ran back to town and when he got there, he proclaimed victory. That's the same Greek word. Uh, 
That's where we get the marathon from, wasn't it, 24 miles? And when he got back, he was so exhausted from running to proclaim the victory that he fell down dead. Well, Jesus proclaimed the victory when he had risen from the dead. But to whom did he proclaim victory? To the spirits in prison. What spirits? They were those, verse 20, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, we know that well, that wonderful story of Noah. Can, can you imagine God comes to Noah and says, I'm going to flood the earth and they're living in an area that did not really receive floods. And so Noah begins to build the ark, this huge boat in the middle of almost a desert. No, no wonder people were laughing at him. It took him a hundred years to build the ark as it was being prepared. And of course, what was the purpose of the ark? to save many animals from the flood. And then after the flood subsided, those animals were let out. But the people died. In fact, how many persons were saved? It says it. In which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, that's really critical. It is through water they were saved. Sometimes God uses water to save people. Sometimes he uses it to destroy people. Uh, recall the other time that water was used to save. The people of Israel were at the Red Sea. The Egyptians were behind them. They were really worried then Moses lifted up his rod, and guess what? The water separated. They walked through on dry ground, maybe a million people. When they got to the other side, suddenly they saw the Egyptians starting to chase after them through that dry ground. What did God do? He allowed the walls of water to come crashing down upon the Egyptians until all were put to death. You can imagine Pharaoh. Boy, he sure learned his lesson. So, what Peter is reminding us of is that during that time of the ark, eight persons were brought safely through water. Noah and his family and those who were married to his children. So they were brought safely through water. Now, that recalls in Peter's mind, by the power of the Holy Spirit, another example that occurred not in the Old Testament books, but in the New Testament books. And he begins it, verse 21. Baptism which corresponds to this. Now, what's he talking about? We have 
a sacrament of baptism that occurred on Pentecost. This is not the baptism of John the baptizer. That wasn't a sacrament in this sense because it was a baptism of repentance. That's why John the baptizer couldn't understand why Jesus wanted to be baptized. He wasn't a sinner, but he became sin for us by fulfilling the righteousness of being baptized with a baptism of repentance. He took on himself our sins. So baptism is now going to be explained by Peter, and we're talking about the Pentecost baptism. It says, which corresponds to this. In other words, just as God used water to lift up Noah and the animals from the death of the flood, so also baptism now lifts us up. In fact, the very next phrase, now saves you. If you are thinking about every other religion in the world, when they say you are saved, what does that mean? It means that you have stopped from disobeying your God. There is a, in a sense, a removal of sin from your body. It's unfortunate that there are even some Christians who believe that, and they have all kinds of house rules. You, you can't dance, you can't gamble, you can't drink. Not because any of those things in and of themselves are sin, but they could lead to sin. And therefore, they have house rules, don't do them at all, lest you get caught up in the sin. Well, that's not Christianity. Christianity, as the next phrase says, is not as a removal of dirt from the body. Now, that's pretty easy to understand. We had uh, three children, Louise and I, and when they were baptized, we took them home, and guess what? They still continued to sin as they grew older. It was not a removal of dirt from the body, a removal of sin. What was it? Baptism was an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, what does that mean? You see, when do you have a bad conscience? You have a bad conscience when you do something wrong. And sometimes you'll feel guilty. But you'll also be afraid of the consequences. Let's say you're going over the speed limit, and all of a sudden you see a police car behind you with his lights on. Immediately... You have a bad conscience. You might not have had a bad conscience while you were going over the speed limit because you were rushing to get where you had to get. But once you see those red lights, wow. So what causes a bad conscience in a Christian? The red lights of God's law. Thou shalt not. And going over the speed limit, how many times, I kind of watch these on YouTube, a police chasing someone, 
And they may be going 120, 140 miles an hour. I saw one recently. And then, of course, they crash and hurt and sometimes kill other people. Now, they don't have a bad conscience when they're doing it, but they sure have a bad conscience when the red lights of God's law comes on. So how does salvation, how does that get over the red lights of God's law? Because the red lights of God's law is that in the day that you sin, eternal death should be the result. But you have a good conscience because of what Jesus has done. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, he took upon himself the punishment of your sins. That's why we have a good conscience, because in faith, we have no worries about going to hell. And we can appeal to God for that. How? The end of verse 21. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, you'll find that that resurrection is God's promise to you that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient for all who believe in Jesus. Now, not only is the resurrection, not only is the crucifixion mentioned, but also the ascension. Verse 22, talking about Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What does that mean? Well, this is a distinction between his humiliation and his exaltation. When Jesus became a human being, when he was incarnate, he humbled himself. And all you have to do is look at the phrases in the Apostles' Creed to understand that humility. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, the next phrase, he descended into hell, you think would be part of his humiliation, but since it occurred after the resurrection, it's part of his exaltation. Where do we get those words? They come from Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus was humbled and God the Father exalted him to the right hand of God. This is really important because Jesus has replaced the devil. The devil who wanted to accuse the saints day and night. He was a prosecuting attorney. And a lot of us feel that. When we do a sin, we recognize that we have gone against God's will. And then we might be worried, is God still going to save us? Jesus becomes our defense attorney. 
who is at the right hand of God. Now, the term right hand of God is figurative. For example, if you're watching a boxing match and somebody knocks out the opponent, they'll often say, boy, he really led with his right. And that doesn't mean he led with his right hand. He could be a left-hander. But it is understood that if he's going to lead with his right hand, figuratively, that means his power is going to take place. Jesus is at the right hand of God. He is God's primary messenger. He is the right hand of God. And at the right hand of God, guess who is subject to him? When he became incarnate, he did not make use all the time of his divine authority and power and attributes. But having ascended into heaven, take a look at Revelation 5, my favorite chapter. Jesus sits at the right hand of God, opens the scroll of salvation, and we are saved. And who is subject to him? Not only us, but angels, authorities, and powers are subject to him. He is restored to all his divine attributes. And having been restored, he therefore delivers the gifts of salvation to us that are already mentioned. The righteous for the righteous, he has brought us to God because we have been baptized into the Holy Christian Church and therefore we are members of the church and we're not begotten children of God. Only Jesus is the begotten one, but we are adopted children of God. And just as Noah and his family were brought safely through water, so also Christians can be assured of their salvation when baptized because God attaches a promise to baptism. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. That's really what this is all about. This First Peter chapter 3, 18 to 22. It's all about not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but it's about how God now does for you what he did for Noah and his family. It's not unusual if you go particularly and look at the architecture of old churches, that if you look at the ceiling, it's kind of like an upside-down boat, or like I like to think, an upside-down ark. The Holy Christian Church is the ship on which Jesus is the captain. And I once did a kind of a little uh, manual on that, and I had one of my members at the church draw this. It was a boat, and there were nets being thrown out of the boat to people in the water, and the nets I labeled as baptism 
and the Lord's Supper. And when they were caught up in the net, they were pulled up into the boat and saved. You are a member of the Holy Christian Church as you are a believer in Jesus Christ, repentant of your sins and saved by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what 1 Peter 3, 18 and following are all about. A wonderful description of the true meaning of the sacrament of baptism. On tomorrow's Law and Gospel, because Wes Reimnitz is on assignment, we may have a surprise for you. We've got a couple of options we're working on, haven't quite decided. So tomorrow's Law and Gospel, normally Rumination Thursday, will share with you what we're planning on doing if you tune in tomorrow at 9.30. Till then, God bless. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.